Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Seven words that'll scare any politician. Roy Green is holding on line one. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network continues. So uh, last weekend, we spoke with uh, Dr. J- or Professor Jason Busa from McMaster University, um, the National Pain Center, about the 2017 guide, opioid guide for non-cancer chronic pain. And I like Professor Busa because he didn't duck, he didn't try to weasel out of what was asked of him. And when I pointed out a couple of issues to him that didn't make any sense, he agreed that they didn't. Now, it was obvious they didn't. But I didn't run and hide. A lot of politicians, uh, well, he's not a politician, but politicians would often try to weasel out of it. I'm also amazed that our federal minister of health would tell the CBC that people with severe drug addictions should perhaps be provided prescription heroin. And the minister says this may save lives. If you go to your favorite chorus radio station and uh, carrying this program, just go to the Roy Green page, and you'll see a blog piece that I wrote about this. So we're going to talk about the minister. Oh, here's another one. They are upset. The minister is upset because one of the voting members on the panel of physicians for the guidelines was said to have uh, had a relationship of some kind with a pharmaceutical company uh, in the sense that he had uh, been paid by the companies that uh, do sell opioids for doing presentations for them and serving on advisory boards. It's not that unusual for doctors to participate with pharmaceutical companies and, uh, and, and serve on boards. These are interrelated um, disciplines what do you expect? Total silence? Non-cooperation? Non-communication? It's utter nonsense. And then the CBC story, nearly half the pain specialists on the broader expert advisory committee, six of its 13 members also disclosed ties to drug companies that made opioid pills. Again, doctors and pharmaceutical companies are going to have communication and relationships It doesn't make it bad. It doesn't make it unprincipled. It doesn't make it illegal. What their minister is suggesting, namely providing prescription heroin for people who are living with severe uh, drug addictions, now that one's bizarre to me. We'll talk about that more. But have a listen, please, to my conversation with uh, Professor Busa, the editor of the Guidelines for Opioids, from last weekend, and then we'll talk. Have a listen. Would you just give us an overview of in layman's terminology? What do the guidelines propose and what do they suggest? And is it true, as two doctors have said to me over the last several days, 
They're guidelines, but we see them more as instructions because if we don't follow what's in the guidelines, we'll have to pay a penalty as far as our governing bodies are concerned. Well, first, to the, to the point you raised before about the individual you'd spoken to that was concerned about losing access to their opioids, which were providing important relief, uh, that's a critical issue. Um, when you look at the overall theme of our guidelines, they do focus on harm reduction. Uh, it has been described as we're in the midst of an opioid epidemic. It's a, it's a challenging issue because there are prescription opioids, but there's also an increasing influx of illegal opioids, and it's, it's often conflated the harms that, uh, that may be resulting from either, but they are different, and our guidelines really only talk about the prescription opioid uh, issues, um, and we are focusing on harm reduction because there has been increasing awareness that uh, rates of addiction, for example, non-fatal and fatal overdose, uh, can be associated with use of even prescription opioids. Um, you mentioned uh, just a little while ago in the program this idea uh, as to trying to understand if people that are suffering fatal overdoses from opioids, are these people using uh, street drugs or are they using prescription opioids? No, that's, that's not what I, I meant. If I said that, then I misspoke. What I'm asking is, are these people, or significant numbers of these people, are they drug addicts who have access to prescription opioids? Because I know that's where the focus of the guideline is. Are they drug addicts who have access to prescription opioids, or are they chronic pain sufferers who are overdosing after receiving prescriptions? Yes. Well, so I would say to that point, uh, we have identified that individuals with a current substance use disorder and even a prior substance use disorder are much more likely to get into trouble with prescription opioids when they are prescribed for chronic pain. So that is a, a critical subgroup that you bring up, and it's one for whom the risks are likely to exceed the benefits. So for individuals with a current substance use disorder, we've made a strong recommendation not to do a trial of opioids for their chronic pain. So these would be, these would be the, uh, the generic, if I may use the term, addicts. Uh, yes. These are individuals with a history of, of opioid use or, or even alcohol uh, use disorder, uh, they are at higher risk for running into trouble with their opioids. Right. Uh, in terms of individuals that have been prescribed a prescription opioid, uh, you, you know, typically for the purposes of managing chronic pain, we do have some observational data from Ontario. Uh, and what we see is, is there is a, a dose response in terms of harms. Uh, so in general, uh, in one large study that was done, uh, one out of every 550 patients that was started on chronic opioid therapy, died of opioid-related causes at about 2.6 years from the first prescription. So that's the time point when they looked. Now, if you look at, at the very high-dose recipients, those receiving 200 milligram morphine equivalents per day or more, the rate of an opioid-related death within 2.6 years of the initial prescription goes up to 1 in 32. Uh, so the numbers go up. Quite a bit, and although we are not talking about, uh, you know, on general and overall large risk, when you look at the number of individuals that are receiving chronic opioid therapy, the absolute numbers do add up to some important figures. Dr. Bosch, I'm looking at the very same statistics in the very same section of the guidelines that you just talked about. And uh, what I read is, and let me just go before we, I'll ask you about the one out of every 550 patients who dies. Um, 
Let me just go up a couple of lines. The use of opioids for chronic non-cancer pain is accompanied by significant risks. In Ontario, annual admissions to publicly funded treatment programs for opioid-related problems doubled between 2004 and 2013 from 8,799 to 18,232. Now, I'm going to go back to what I spoke about a moment ago. Are those numbers, do they reflect only opioid patients who are receiving opioid medications by prescription? Or do they again, and I'll use this term reluctantly, do they again include maybe significant numbers of people who are generically addicted? So that, that figure does not disentangle those two populations. Uh, so that study was not able to break it down and to say, <clears throat> are people coming into these treatment programs due to prescription opioid use or due to opioids that they've acquired outside of the rototypical prescriptions? Uh, so, you're, so you're quite right. We are looking in some of these statistics uh, at a challenge of disentangling where they're coming from. The, the subsequent statistic we were talking about earlier with the one out of every 550 patients uh, dying of opioid-related causes at about 2.6 years from first prescription, those are individuals who were prescribed uh, an opioid for, their, uh, for, for managing their, uh, their, their medical condition. Okay, so again, going back to that uh, earlier number, the 18,232 who in 2013 were admitted to publicly funded treatment programs for opioid-related problems, though that number might suggest, or it could be, 90% of them would be generic drug addicts. 10% might be people who were, are being prescribed opioid for their chronic pain. So the numbers of patients who uh, attend these treatments could be extremely low, and the generic addicts' proportion of that number could be quite high. Well, the, the, the authors that did that study, they, they did attempt to do what they could uh, to render those figures relevant to people that had uh, been prescribed an opioid. Now, it's not to say that they were able to do a perfect job of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, there, there is at least some effort that was taken to try to make those figures relevant to prescription opioid use, uh, but, you, but certainly individuals that might have also been addiction, uh, struggled with addiction issues, might have come into that as well. Okay. Well, it seems to me that that probably would be the case and, and since these are the guidelines to physicians for prescribing opioids, that's a, that's a concerning stat because it doesn't break things down really uh, effectively. Let me also go to the other point that, uh, that the guideline mentions, and you've mentioned as well. One of every 550 patients started on opioid therapy in Ontario died of opioid-related causes a median of 2.6 years from his or her first opioid prescription. That's 0.20. My math isn't excellent, but I'd, think, I'd say that's 0.20%. That's a very low number. It is, yes. But, but you'll see the subsequent uh, statistic when you look at the higher doses. Yeah. Well, now we're up to about 3%. And what percentage of the patients, do you know what percentage of patients who are receiving opioid prescriptions are receiving 200 milligrams a day or more as, as their prescription? We, we do. Uh, so there was also another, and you'll see in the guideline, we do cite that statistic. There was a, um, a longitudinal study done in Ontario from 2003 to 2014, and what they found was 40% of patients receiving prescription long-acting opioid therapy were receiving greater than 200 milligram morphine equivalent per day. Part two of my conversation with Professor Jason Busser right after this. 
You mess with the you bull. You mess with the bull. You get the horns. You get the horns. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. See, the, uh, the point I'm making is it's not the chronic care patient who is the problem. It's the generic drug addict who's the problem now. And the guidelines, the use of opioids for chronic non-cancer pain is accompanied by significant risks. In Ontario, annual admissions to publicly funded treatment programs for opioid-related problems doubled between 2014 and 2013 from 8,799 to 18,232. Big number. But what they don't know is what percentage or what proportion of that number is pain sufferers and what percentage is generic addicts. I suspect the percentage of generic addicts is much higher than chronic pain patients. Here's part two of my interview with Professor Busa. Uh, Dr. Bosa, I want to just read a few lines from my blog this morning. And um, I wrote, there are questions about the recommendations within the guidelines. One such recommendation is that an entire team of medical professionals be assigned to chronic pain sufferers in order to wean them from opioids and deliver non-opioid alternatives. The team would consist of, quote, several health professionals whom physicians can access according to their availability. Possibilities include, but are not limited to, a primary care physician, a nurse, a pharmacist, a physical therapist, a chiropractor, a kinesiologist, an occupational therapist, an addiction specialist, a psychiatrist, and a psychologist. And I ask, seriously, in Canada, more than 10% of the population has no access to a family doctor. So where is this myriad of specialists going to be coming from? I know the guidelines say that according to their availability, but what happens if none is available? And what happens to the chronic care patient who doesn't have a primary care physician goes to a walk-in clinic, and they will tell you immediately, no, we can't give you opioids, go to an emergency room, and the patient is caught in a revolving door. Yes, so it's a great point. Um, What we've done with each of the recommendations is we've made them based on the evidence that's available. So we have good evidence that shows us that patients struggling to reduce their opioid dose uh, very often will be successful if they are able to acquire multidisciplinary support. You're absolutely right that resource is a critical issue, and our clinical experts that were involved in the guideline made this point and said, we we cannot hold people to a standard. Resources are not available for many patients that may benefit. So our recommendations are meant to reflect the evidence, but we've made clear statements in the guideline that patients and, and their caregivers cannot be required to deliver on a recommendation when the resources are not there. And it is now the job of the government, uh, the people that make the policy, to see what can be done to make these kind of resources available. So the recommendation tells us we have good evidence to show this works, but now it's up to the policymakers to make the resources available so the recommendation can be implemented. What do you say to the chronic care patient who has a doctor who says, look, I'd like to continue to give you what I've been prescribing, but these guidelines frighten me, and I feel that I'm going to be under professional pressure If I continue to give you 100, 120, 140, 160 milligrams a day, I have to try to get you down to 50. And the patient says, Doctor, you and I both know that's not going to work. Yeah, absolutely right. And we've tried to be very, very clear uh, in our guideline about two very separate groups of patients. So one is the individual with chronic pain who has not tried an opioid yet. They are looking at trying opioids for the first time. It's that population that we are making a weak recommendation to stay below 50 milligrams morphine equivalent per day. 
and a strong recommendation to stay below 90. Now, what you're talking about is an individual that's already on opioids. Maybe they've been using opioids at higher doses for decades, and they're doing well. And now these guidelines come out. So the recommendations around 50 and 90 would not apply to that individual. For that individual, we've made a weak recommendation for individuals using greater than 90 milligrams per day that they should be approached to talk about a trial of tapering their opioid dose. But it's a weak recommendation because we only have low-quality evidence that they are going to benefit. And we're also very cognizant of the fact that they could go into opioid withdrawal. So we want to be very careful about not putting someone in a worse situation than we found them. And so we've put an associated remark with that recommendation where we say attempt to taper people at higher doses, where we say, and I'm quoting, some patients may have a substantial increase in pain or decrease in function that persists for more than one month after a small dose reduction. Tapering may be paused or potentially abandoned in such patients. So for the theoretical individual you talked about, if our guidelines were being appropriately applied, their caregiver would have a discussion with them and say, we know at higher doses you are accepting higher risks of rare but serious side effects. Would you like to consider an attempt to bring your dose down somewhat? Dr. Bosa, let's go back to the, uh, the point that you were addressing, and that is doctors who facing patients who say, look, You've been giving me whatever the number may be, um, 90, 120, 150, 200 milligrams a day. As you suggested, maybe they've been taking these medications for decades. Now the patient says, I know they want to get me down to 50 milligrams a day. That's not going to work, and I'm terrified. Yes, and so that recommendation we've made to taper down to below 90 for people using greater than 90 is a weak recommendation. And what that means is we don't have high-quality evidence that it is going to necessarily benefit everyone. And so that decision needs to be made with the patient, considering their values and preferences. So it's quite reasonable for the patient, after they've been informed about the harms and benefits of their dose, to make a decision that they do not wish to pursue a taper. And if the patient makes that decision, and the doctor says, I feel compelled to direct you in uh, toward that, then what are the patient's options? Well, we have made an explicit statement in the guideline that none of our weak recommendations are candidates for standards of practice. So there, there, if there is a standard of practice that incorporates this particular recommendation, uh, that, that would be an inappropriate use of our recommendation. All right, and we'll see what then what the policymakers and the politicians ultimately decide. Yeah, and, and that's something we don't have control over, but yeah, we are I wish you did. to do education in that area. I wish you had more control over that area because those are the people who ultimately do frighten me. So what have we heard from the politicians and particularly the federal minister of health? That after this.